Please take your Bibles and turn in them to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read the very end of chapter 3 and the first verse of chapter 4. Those verses are printed in the bulletin for you as well. Page 9, you're welcome to follow along there if you would so desire. We've been looking at hope this spring for the last couple of months, the topic of hope. We looked at what the ground of our hope as believers is, that our hope is rooted in the character of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and in the scriptures. We've looked at the, the, uh, the character of our hope, what it is, what we're actually looking forward to, that we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth, the resurrection of the body, the second coming of Jesus, even to Judgment Day, which for believers is not a day of fear, but a day of, of confidence, of open acquittal before Christ. Last week, we looked at the fruit of hope. And last week, we said the fruit of our hope is purity, that those who hope in Christ purify themselves even as he is pure. What I want to say this week is, is to talk more on the fruit of hope and to say also that the fruit of hope for believers is endurance and perseverance and standing firm, that those who hope in the Lord Jesus Christ are given a new inner confidence and strength to stand even when life is very difficult. So, the fruit of hope is perseverance. I'm going to read for us uh, these three verses uh, from Philippians 3.20 through the first verse of chapter 4. And let me ask, if you're able, would you please join me in standing as we hear God's holy word. The word of the Lord from Philippians 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us for our comfort and for our hope, for our wisdom, our salvation, and our guidance. We ask that your spirit now would open the word to us. Lord, give it to our hearts. May we hear it by faith. May we receive it. May we treasure it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives in order that it might bear fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Back seven or eight weeks ago, when I first started this series on the topic of hope, Joe was kind to remind me of that great scene in the Shawshank Redemption, where uh, Andy and Red are sitting together at the table eating a meal with the other prisoners there. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's in a prison. All the prisoners are eating the meal together, and Andy has just gotten out of two weeks in solitary confinement. And he, he takes his meal and he sits down and he says, eh, it was the easiest time I ever did. Of course, they ask how that could possibly be to, to call two weeks of solitary confinement easy in any way. And he says, well, he had Mozart with him to keep him company. Not literally, of course, or even by actual music, but he said, no, I had him... In here, and in here, 
that, that in his mind and in his heart, he had music. The, the beauty of Mozart's music, which internally gave him strength to endure those two weeks of solitary confinement. His friend, Red, is there and he says, he used to like music too. But he gave that up when he was sent to prison. He said it just didn't make any sense to like music in here. Andy corrects him. He says, this is where it makes the most sense. This is where you need music. This is where you have to have that, that something in your heart that, that reminds you of a vision of glory and of, of beauty. He says, I, you need something to remind you that there are places in this world that are not made out of stone. There are places in this world where beauty still exists. He says you need to have that internal sense that, that gives you hope, that, that it helps you to persevere. And we see in the movie that Red, his friend who's grown, grown jaded and resigned through his years in prison, he's the one who rebukes Andy for that hope, and he says, hope is a dangerous thing. But Andy never gave up, and we see that throughout the course of the movie, through his 19 years that he spent in that dull and dreary and bleak prison, he never gives up. And part of the reason that he's able to endure and to maintain that is because he has in his heart a vision of the glory and the beauty of a better world, a world outside the prison. And he knows in his own soul that he belongs in that better world, that he doesn't belong in this prison. And that hope that he has is what gives him the ability to endure. He has this dream that, that someday he is going to retire to the peaceful shores of the Pacific Ocean. And it's that, that dream, that longing, that sense of hope that he has, that keeps him going through his long sentence in prison. Hope is a powerful thing. That's what I've, I've tried to say, is that hope is not static in any sense. Our hope is active. It's powerful. Hope bears fruit in the life of the person who has it. And one of the primary fruits that hope bears is perseverance and endurance, even in the midst of suffering and difficulty. On some of these weeks, I've given some just small examples of that, and we've said that even something like looking forward to a vacation or looking forward to a special dinner out can give you the endurance to get through a really tough day at work because you have something that you're looking forward to, something that you know is going to be a, a better time, right? It's going to bring you joy. But we've also said we need far more than that. It's not enough for us to have a, a dinner out or a vacation to look forward to. We must have the hope of Christ. Because we need to get through not just a tough day, but occasionally we need the power to endure through a tough life. We need the power to endure the bad diagnosis. We need the power to endure family problems to which there's no easy solution. Now, what's going to give us that level of perseverance and endurance to say, I can, I can endure through these trials? Is it not only the hope of Jesus Christ who says to us, he says in the Gospels, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Right? In this world, you will have trouble. Truest thing he ever said, right? In this world, we have trouble. But Jesus says, take heart. 
because he has overcome the world. That's what I want to help us do today. I want to help you take heart. To, to help you put the eyes of your heart back on Jesus, who has himself overcome the world, so that we can say with confidence, yes, we do have trouble. Jesus was right on that one. But at the same time, we take heart. We do not despair. Because Jesus has overcome the world. In these verses in Philippians, Paul is saying something similar. He is expressing his own hope that is empowering him to endure his own trials. Right? If we went back a few verses, he talks about how he is pressing on. He says, not that I have already obtained that for which he is hoping. Right? He recognizes that his ultimate fulfillment, his ultimate satisfaction is yet future to him. He hasn't attained it yet. He's still enduring through this life. And he's, he explains how he does it by forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. He is literally keeping the eyes of his heart focused on what lies ahead of him. Right? His hope that he is one day going to participate in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that hope draws his heart forward to endure the trials of life. I think the verses that we read are where he explains it so succinctly. Uh, and, and we're just going to walk through these in, in three points. Number one, he tells us who we are. Right now, we are citizens of heaven. Number two, he tells us what we're doing. We're waiting for Jesus and for glory. And then thirdly, the application that comes in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Stand firm. Take heart. Right? Endure. Persevere. But first, he tells us who we are. Right? He tells us that we are citizens of heaven. Verse 20 but our citizenship is in heaven. Now this is a, a very powerful image for Paul to invoke, to tell us, to tell the Philippians, by extension us, we are those that our citizenship is in heaven. That's a powerful image because I think that for most of us, we know, sort of intuitively, that your citizenship tells you something important about who you are. Your citizenship has a, a bearing on sort of your sense of identity, your sense of belonging. And it tells you who you are. Andy, in the movie, is saying that he, he still has hope because he knows he doesn't belong in that prison. Right? He's, he's thinking of that beautiful world outside its walls and knowing he really belongs there. Paul is saying to us, this is not our home. We're not citizens of this sad world. You don't really belong here. You're a citizen of a better place. You're a citizen of heaven. One thing that's interesting here is that he says this specifically in Philippians. Now, so he's writing to the church in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. So they know something about this because Philippi, where they live, they are a Roman colony despite the fact that they're actually quite a long ways from Rome itself. Because... 80, 90 years prior, when Octavian had become the Roman emperor, 30 BC, he had reorganized the city of Philippi. To do so, he had resettled it. He had sent a number of Italians from Rome to live in Philippi, including quite a few military veterans, right? So people who have a real sense of pride about being a Roman citizen, a real sense of identity and belonging in that. They had built a forum there. The city was governed by Roman law. 
which was enforced by military officers appointed from Rome. So the whole city of Philippi was designed to be sort of like a miniature Rome, right? Even though it was actually a long ways from Rome, it was like Rome, and the citizens of Philippi were Roman citizens, and they were to conduct themselves as in a way that was worthy of a citizen of Rome, right? They weren't the barbarians. They were Roman citizens, and that's how they were to live. Paul tells the Philippians back in chapter 1, verse 27, uh, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the ESV, and I've got a footnote that says, uh, behave as citizens worthy. That's the actual language there is that he's telling them, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. That even though, and this is what he's drawing on here, saying your citizenship is in heaven, even though you might be a long way from heaven, that's not what matters. Right? You are, the church is like a colony of heaven, and you are, as believers, citizens of heaven. And we are to behave, therefore, not as the people who live in this world, but in a way that is fitting our true citizenship, which is in heaven. Right? Whenever we see, even in this world, and we see it a lot in Los Angeles because there's so many people who have come here from all over the world, that we see these little colonies that form of particular cultures. Right? And they'll form a particular little, you know, little enclave where they kind of claim their own culture, though it be very distant, and they still practice their customs, right? they still eat their food, they still will get together and eat together and then they sing their songs. Right? They're behaving as citizens worthy of their own country or culture, wherever it is, even though they're located here in Los Angeles. In one sense, that's exactly what we do as a church. We recognize that although we live here in this world, we are citizens of heaven. And so every Sunday, we gather together as a little colony of heaven, right? and we sing the songs of heaven. We read the scriptures of heaven. We gather around the table together to eat the meal of heaven and to remind ourselves who we are, what our customs really are, that we are not really defined by this world. We live here, but our citizenship is elsewhere. That is what we do, and he says that's how we're to walk. Walk worthy of your citizenship. And, and this is meant, again, to give us that hope, to give us that foundation in our hearts to know this world full of trials and tribulations is really not our home. We belong to a better place. We belong to a happier place. A place of joy and glory. A place where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. That's our citizenship. That's our citizenship. We're living now as, as exiles in the far country, but we're a colony of heaven and it's, it's a challenge, but we are to walk as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So he tells us who we are. He reminds us of our citizenship. And he tells us, second, what we're doing here. That we're waiting for glory. So he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, Hear this, you know, listen to this as an exile, as a citizen of, of heaven. He knows that the Philippians, even though their citizenship is in heaven, they can say, that is great, but it's still really hard. 
Right? Life is still really difficult. We're suffering because we live here in this broken place. And he says, yes, but we're just waiting. It's just a matter of time. And our king is going to come to us. And our king is the one who already has the power to subject all things to himself. And when he comes, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. You see, the, the centerpiece of the hope is Jesus. And, it, and it's nothing less than that. That he doesn't take these people with their hard lives and try to just pat them on the back and say, listen, it's going to be okay. Right? Buck up. Right? Turn that frown upside down. He gives them Christ. He knows that nothing less has the power to give you endurance, to give you true uh, ability to persevere. It's Jesus Christ himself, and as believers we must look only to Christ. I think what happens is this. I think the level of hope that you experience in your heart runs on a very simple algorithm. It runs like this. If by faith you are looking to Christ and clinging to Christ, you have hope. To the extent you take the eyes of your heart off of Christ and begin to look elsewhere for life and hope and joy, your hope wanes. Right? It's really not much more complicated than that. To the extent that we're looking to Christ, we have hope. To the extent that we begin to look away. Right? It's just like Peter stepping out of the boat. When he began to look at the storm around him, he began to sink. And and it's, that's who we are, right? To the extent that we have our eyes on Christ, that in itself, you know, we hear the words, I have overcome the world, so take heart. But prone to wander as we are to the extent that we take our eyes off of Christ, our hope wanes, our hope sinks. We sink. We don't endure. And Paul is saying that, that here we are to look to Christ And to see him not only as the one who has triumphed over death, who has borne our sins, who has given us life, who has been raised from the dead, but we're also to see him as the one who bears a future hope for us, the one who is yet to come, right? The one who is currently in heaven and and is going to come for his people. And when he comes, he will transform us. He will glorify us because we can trust he is powerful, right? By his resurrection from the dead, by his own exaltation, He currently has the ability and the power to to subject all things to himself. And so he's pointing them to Christ and he he does it uh, three titles and one name where he says a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. A Savior, the Lord Jesus, who is the Christ. Now, we could talk about each one of those. Um... I don't, I don't necessarily want to go into them because we've heard these over and over, but I want you to think of them maybe from a slightly different angle and think of each of those terms as they relate to our hope. Think of each one of those terms as a term that's a title for Christ that's given to us in order to buoy up our hope, that he's called a savior. And he's called that not only because he has saved us from sin, but also because he is going to save us from this sad world, that he's coming for us. He's called the Lord because he's the king, because he reigns, because he is the one who does actually have the power to subject all things to himself, and that there is nothing in your life or anyone's life that is outside of his control. He is the Lord. 
He's the Christ, that is, he's the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the one on whom all the hopes of God's people rest. All his promises are yes and amen in Christ alone. So, these titles are important, but we have to remember, if we're going to hear them correctly, we have to remember that when Paul is writing this letter, that Jesus is not the only one who had a claim to those titles, of, especially Savior and Lord, that there were other people in the world in those days who said they should be called a Savior, that they should be called Lord, right? That, that was just some active conflict, that there were others who said, no, that's my title. Right? We hear those we usually just think of, okay, these are church terms, right? This is religious language. That's the only way we think of it. For them, those were terms that were in active play and different people were fighting over them. So we have to, to hear them as a claim that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the Savior. And we have to ask, to what extent do we submit to that? What is it in your life Perhaps it's not a person arguing for it. Maybe it is. Maybe it's a thing or even just a kind of a dream, a goal or an idea. What is it in your life that is saying to you, put your hope in me and I will rescue you. I will bring you joy. Put your hope in me and I will deliver life to you. Put your hope in me and I will rescue you from the doldrums of life and I will give you abundant life, right? Something beyond. Because we have these things. Who is the one saying, hope in me because only I can restore real life, only I can beat back the sorrow, beat back the angst that we feel in life? It can be all sorts of things. Aren't we guilty of oftentimes looking to either our possessions or to a thing that we wish was our possession and thinking, all my hope is in this. And, and when I achieve it, when I meet this goal, when I reach my dream, you know, life will be good. Things will be okay. That will give me the ability to, to get beyond these problems. Sometimes we're guilty of looking to certain experiences. You know, to say, if only I could do this or live this way or have this kind of life, you know, it would free me from... Uh, the status quo, this weight and burden we feel to make our own lives worth living. If only we could do this thing, it would give me status, it would give me relevance, it would give me significance. Maybe we're guilty of looking sometimes to our employment to save us, to save us from the, the verdict that we're not worthwhile, the verdict that we're not enough, that we're not good that we don't have value and we say, if only I get this particular position or the promotion that I seek, or if only I finally get the dream job, it will tell me who I am. And we look to these things and they become for us our functional saviors and lords. But we know that those are false saviors. We know none of those give us hope. None of those lead us to purity. None of those give us any more endurance, any more perseverance. None of those can save. None of those really give us hope. And so Paul is saying the one Savior that we look to, the one Lord, is Jesus. And here's what Jesus is going to do when he comes. He's going to transform you. He'll take your lowly body that suffers from weakness. 
susceptibility to disease, to use the word that Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it's corruptible. Right? It's, it's susceptible to all sorts of weaknesses, mental, emotional, physical, all the weakness that, from which we suffer. And he says Jesus is going to come take this broken uh, body that's, that's fallen, that's tempted, that's weary, that's worn, and he's going to transform it into a glorious body just like his own. Because that's what Jesus has received. He has a glorified body, and when he comes for us, he will do the same for us as well. And it is saying here that, that Jesus is the one who actually provides the hope that we need. Don't look to anything else or anyone else, but look only to Jesus and his hope. And there's actual perseverance in that. There's actual perseverance. And so chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. Stand firm. Here's the point that Paul has been getting at. Encouraging the people. Because they, and we read in the rest of the Philippians that the church has problems. The church has problems. That's the reason he writes these verses, to say to them, hope in Christ, hope in Christ alone, remember who you are, and that is what gives you the strength to stand firm. That is your only hope, that you are citizens of heaven, you're waiting for a Savior, and when He comes, here's what you have to look forward to. That is a glorious hope, so stand firm. But I want us to hear one thing. The music that, that Paul would pre- play for the Philippians, he doesn't give them Mozart to buoy up their hopes. He gives them the gospel. Right? He gives them something far better, ultimately, than what Andy had that helped him to endure his long, unjust prison sentence. He doesn't give them Mozart. He gives them the very music of the gospel. Because we know, here's the reality that I think we all feel, is that perseverance uh, and endurance are difficult. They don't come easy to us. And and we might hear this and we say, yes, how much I wish I had that. I need that, but it's difficult. And so he gives them a great reason. He says, stand firm, but we can't just hear that verse alone and say, stand firm, that's that's the hope. No, that's not the hope. Because I know we hear this a lot. I feel like we hear this a lot in our world today that, you know, so-and-so, we praise them because they are strong, right? So-and-so realized that they in themselves are enough. Right? So-and-so was able to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps, right? They're a fighter. They're determined. We look up to those people and, and we admire them for being able to do that. But isn't that really just another way of hoping in yourself? To say that if I'm strong enough, if I'm determined enough, if I am one of those who's a fighter and not a giver-upper, well, that's just hoping in your own strength. That won't get you through. But Paul, by playing for them, not Mozart, but the gospel, he says, there is hope, and the hope is not just for the strong. The hope is not just for the determined. It's not just for the self-sufficient. The hope of the gospel is for those who know themselves to be weak. The hope of the gospel is for those who know themselves to be overwhelmed and overrun by the problems of life and know that they are not sufficient to face those things because maybe they have tried and failed. 
And they know that they will give out eventually. Your determination won't be enough. Your gift of a naturally buoyant and happy disposition to face trials will in the end not be sufficient. This life will try us all. Jesus promised that. But the power to stand firm in the midst of it comes from the gospel realities that you, believer in Christ, belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And he is coming for you. And he will transform this lowly body that suffers into a glorious body like his own. And he is powerful to do that. Right? That's where the Heidelberg Catechism begins. You recognize those words. It says this, What is your only comfort in life and in death? Here's the answer. And listen to it. <clears throat> your only comfort is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And the question is, believer, what is your only hope, your only comfort in life and in death? And that is our comfort, that we belong not to ourselves, that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. See, in, in preaching about hope, I don't want anyone to hear that the message of these sermons is, come on, buck up. Paul's not saying that. He's saying exactly the opposite, isn't he? The gospel is that not only do you live in a fallen world where you suffer, also, you contribute to that fallen world. Right? You are part of the problem because of sin. And all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We suffer in this world. We also cause others to suffer in this world. Because we are sinful. But thanks be to God who loved you even while you were yet sinners. And he sent his son Jesus Christ to redeem you from your sin to redeem you out of this broken world, to die the death that you deserved, to give you the life that was a free gift. The gospel is we deserve the prison sentence. We have no right in our own to think, I don't belong here. I belong in a better place. No, we do. We deserved it. But the gospel is that by faith, Jesus took your prison sentence. And by faith, he gives you the freedom. And even though we still live in this world, Jesus is coming soon. And so he says, therefore, my beloved, stand firm. Stand firm with that hope in mind, that Jesus Christ is a good and faithful Savior for you. He loves you and cares for you. And, friends, he is coming soon for you. Just a little while longer. Just a little while longer and Jesus will be here, transforming our lowly bodies into a glorious body like his own because even now he has the power as Lord, the power that enables him to subject all things, even sin, misery, hell, death itself, to subject those things to himself. Those are the last enemies which shall finally on that day be put under his feet and we will be with him. 
openly acquitted on the day of judgment, made perfectly blessed in the full, joy, full enjoyment of his presence to all eternity, satisfied with seeing his likeness. That's our, that's our hope. That's our hope. And, and to know that hope, to have that as a burning coal in your heart is what gives light. What says, okay, in this world I do have trouble, but Jesus has overcome this world. Take heart. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for his victory. Thank you for his love. Thank you for his forgiveness and the hope that is given to us that you take such pains in your scriptures to write about, to tell us about, to secure our hearts that we might not doubt and we might not fall into insecurity, but Lord, that we might hope in Christ. Help us to hope. Help us to persevere and to endure until the end that we might enjoy the full satisfaction of seeing Jesus as he is and being like him. Lord, take these words from your scriptures, apply them to our hearts, use them for your purposes, encourage and edify your people, build us up, and may your word bear fruit 30, 60, even 100 times that which has been sown. We pray these things in Jesus' name.